Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. In one of his first acts as president, Donald Trump issued an executive order shutting down immigration from several Muslim-majority countries. The criticism has been fierce. This morning, the White House is claiming the implementation of President Trump's travel ban is, quote, unquote, a massive success story. But the swift reaction from around the country shows a very different reality. Known as the Muslim ban, this divisive policy prompted a series of judicial battles until it was finally decided by the Supreme Court. The core of presidential authority. In doing so, we must consider not only the statements of a particular president, but also the authority of the presidency itself. For years, this ban divided friends and families. It took another executive order, four years later, on the first day of the new Biden administration, for the decision to be overturned. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Today on Global Reboot, we're taking a hard look at Islamophobia and how it can be prevented around the world. I'm joined by scholars Irshad Manji and Shadi Hamid. Irshad is a best-selling author on issues of culture and religion, as well as a senior fellow with Oxford University's Initiative for Global Ethics and Human Rights. And Shadi is a scholar at the Brookings Institution. He's also the author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. I started our conversation by asking them where they were when they heard the news about Trump's new travel bans. Well, I have to say that I had expected it. So any emotional shock had long worn off by then. And then my reaction deepened over the course of the day because I had received so many emails, phone calls, and social media messages from people asking if I'm okay. And it made me realize that in addition to spikes in Islamophobia in America particularly, there is also a great deal of love for Muslims and for minorities of all kinds. Wow. Shadi, what about you? So what I remember quite vividly is when Trump announced his proposal of a Muslim ban as a candidate. And I remember walking into a coffee shop and seeing CNN having a debate about whether or not Muslims are a problem or a threat. The speakers on CNN were all against the Muslim ban, but we were still being objectified as a community. And I I remember feeling, probably for the first time, that this very odd position of hearing a lot of other people talking about me and my community. And I remember as well, later that week, my parents and I, we had basically the Muslim version of the talk, where my dad, who is also a Canadian citizen, brought up this prospect that, hey, if things get really bad in the U.S., if Trump wins or if God knows what else happens, do we have a backup plan as a family and what would we actually do? And he was half joking about this, but also kind of half serious where he was like, Shadi, you know, if you really need it, there is a way for you to get Canadian citizenship because 
I'm still Canadian. That's what he told me. And that's when it really hit me that we might be entering into dark territory. But I think the fears were very much there early on. When it was actually implemented, when Trump became president, I agree with Arshad that there was this sense of pride and satisfaction that many of my fellow Americans were coming to the defense of Muslims. And that gave me hope early on that as frightening as Trump might be, there are enough Americans who are willing to stand up to what he was doing. So I guess what I'm hearing from you both is feelings of both fear, but also there's a little bit of hope. Irshad, you talked about feeling love. And I want to explore that a little bit more because it wasn't always like this, right? I mean, going back to 9-11, for example, can you compare the two feelings? How has it evolved for you in terms of being Muslim in the United States? There was a lot less information and understanding of Muslim people in 2001. And for all the wrong reasons, namely 9-11, information, misunderstanding, misinformation, and understanding came to the fore in the years since then. A lot of Americans know at least one Muslim and very much value those relationships. Sometimes, interestingly, they are afraid to ask more questions because they treasure their relationships with the Muslims in their lives so much that they never want to come off as being offensive. And I think that's a problem. And that goes to some of the excesses happening on the left today, not just on the right. So there is more nuance that is part of ordinary people's politics than the media often cover and give Americans credit for. Shadi, I want to talk about the impact outside of the United States. Both of you have described what it was like to be American, what it was like in terms of the American experience and the hopes and the fears. But this also had a huge impact on how America was perceived around the world, didn't it? Yeah, it did. But in, in somewhat confusing and complex ways, oddly enough, there were Arab leaders who either supported the Muslim ban or acquiesced to it, in part because their own countries weren't targeted. And so, for example, if you're a politician in Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, you're happy that it's not affecting you and it's affecting lesser, let's say, uh, Muslim majority countries. And they also saw Trump as an improvement compared to Obama. And that's a longer story of why, especially certain leaders in the Gulf, in countries like Saudi Arabia, had a bit of a falling out with Obama, didn't get along with him. And they saw Trump as someone who spoke their language in certain ways that he, like them, had an authoritarian sensibility. On the other hand, though, we have the broader publics in the Middle East. And that's where Trump was largely perceived as um, you know, not a big fan of Muslims or Islamophobic. And I'll add um, that under Trump, a lot of people who may not have publicly admitted that they still looked to the United States for hope, hmm. utterly lost that hope. So let's try and move beyond the Trump years to the Biden era. And Biden has repealed the travel bans. 
But I think it's important to point out that according to polls, it's only a slender, fairly partisan majority that is in favor of what Biden has done, which is to repeal these bans. There's an ABC Ipsos poll, which shows that only 55% of Americans approve of Biden's measures. So Ishad, just to get a sense from you then of what that means for America, what does it mean to be in the place where, on the one hand, Washington has inflicted real pain on people around the world who may want to come here. Thousands, tens of thousands of family members of U.S. citizens have been unable to come here. But on the other hand, it's not like there isn't some support for those measures. Of course. One need only remember that Trump pulled victory out of what many assumed was the jaws of defeat. He couldn't have done that if there wasn't a level of support to back him on the policies that he'd already been articulating. That's not the right word for Trump, that he'd been, you know, that he'd been uh, shouting about on the campaign trail. That said, we're living in a very complex cultural moment in the United States. People are afraid. People are afraid about all kinds of things. They're afraid for their jobs if they still have them. They're afraid about being labeled racist, misogynists, phobes of this or that kind if they're not ultra careful about what comes out of their mouths and of uncertainty in general. And so any policy that suggests it can make order out of chaos and give people certitudes will have a level of support. That doesn't mean that the people who support order-oriented policies are coming from a place of hate. So I think there's, there's also a silver lining here in that attitudes towards American Muslims have actually improved over the last five years. So Republicans generally still have negative attitudes. But what has shifted is that among Democrats and independents, they just like Muslims more in part because one of the best ways to signal your anti-Trump credentials is to be pro-Muslim. And in some ways, I think the Trump years, as frightening as they may have been, especially for Muslims in, in certain parts of the country, it was also a kind of coming out party for American Muslims that we became more present in the cultural mainstream, on TV, in comedy. And it's interesting that now when I watch TV shows, I'm no longer surprised when I see a Muslim character. I'm hearing a lot of hope from both of you, but obviously there's still a long ways to go, isn't there? Of course. There's always a long way to go. When you are a member of a minority community, whatever minority that may be, you're bound to be misunderstood. Assumptions will be made about you. Some will be afraid of you and the label that you carry, whether or not you accept that label for yourself. And this is part of how, frankly, America brands itself around the world, right? We in America are immigrants. Or this is the place where it doesn't matter where you come from, what matters is where you're going. Welded from many nations and races. And Lord knows these days, it's not nearly close to perfect. But the point is that it's a country that at least part of its own mythology, it insists on getting better. 
My mm. belief is that the Trump years showed how insecure Americans actually are about their own identity, which is why they constantly have to bang the drum of American exceptionalism. So there is American exceptionalism. And Shadi, you've written a book about Islamic exceptionalism in which you say, among other things, that Islam is in fact distinctive in how it relates to politics, very different from other religions. Islam is different, you say. Explain that. My argument is that Islam has and continues to play an outsized role in public life and politics. It has proven to be resistant to secularization over the last century, despite many efforts to secularize through coercion in various countries. What I think is great about, to go back to the theme of what makes America different as well, is that America allows for public expressions of religiosity. Mm. So Muslim immigrants can come to the U.S. and not feel they have to hide their religious convictions. Unlike, say, in Europe, where in many countries you choose between, say, your French identity or your German identity and your Muslim identity, the two are in conflict because these are very secular societies where public displays of religion are frowned upon. Irshad, do you think the United States is able to accommodate Islam in the way that it should? You know, I do. It's not so much whether Islam is exceptional or for that matter, even America is exceptional. As you know, I think American exceptionalism is a bit of a myth, but it's more where people, people are at. It's Muslims who are the trouble with Islam today. And I have to tell you, can you explain that a bit more? Sure. So cultures are not static. They evolve. And this is why I have faith that America can do right by its Muslim communities. In fact, as Shadi has pointed out, many Americans appreciate the fact that Muslims often are religious. That's not something to be ashamed of in America. One of the bigger questions is, will Muslim communities integrate with American traditions to ensure that most people, most Muslims, women, gay and lesbian people, people who are not brown, who are in fact black, are treated equally within their Muslim communities too. And I have to say, I have faith and hope on both of those fronts. So Shadi, tell me who gets to decide what Islam looks like. I mean, one of the things that always strikes me about the way Americans talk about Islam and the way they perceive it is that there's this sense that Muslim countries, for example, are all in the Middle East, when in fact, if you look at populations of the countries with the most Muslims, they tend to be in other parts of the world. I mean, there's Indonesia, which has the most Muslims. There's countries in South Asia, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, all of which are among the five countries that have the most Muslims. So I guess the question is, who gets to decide what Islam is? Who gets to decide Islam's role in public life? Yeah, so I think that when it comes down to it, Muslims are individuals, especially in an individualist culture like America's, where we do value 
that each individual makes their own choices and opts for their own approach to religion. And we have the freedom to pursue that here in the U.S. as Muslims. And I've said before that I think America today is the best place to be a Muslim in large part because Muslims don't have to worry about being persecuted by the state if they have unorthodox views, that they can be Muslim in their own way. And that's a very powerful thing. Now, there's also some tensions, too, because if you're a Muslim, people think that you represent your group. And sometimes you're expected to speak on behalf of Muslims writ large, which is problematic. And one example of this, I think, is whenever there is a terrorist attack that is committed by a Muslim, there's pressure on American Muslims to offer condemnations that we have to put out Mm. a disclaimer on Twitter or something before we say whatever else we want to say, we have to have a kind of pro forma denunciation. I've actually have a policy where I don't issue those condemnations because it should go without saying that as an American, I'm against terrorist attacks that kill civilians. No one should doubt that just because I happen to have been born Muslim. And so I think that we have to start moving away from this idea. And as Arshad said, it's Muslims ultimately through their own individual actions who will shape how Islam evolves in the coming decades or centuries. I don't think that Islam can be anything we want it to be. I think there's a creedal foundation. I think there are things that just like to be a Christian, you believe in the divinity of Christ in some fashion. To be a Muslim means that you believe certain things about the Quran or believe that Prophet Muhammad was the last prophet, so on and so forth. So those are the core things. But beyond those core things, there is incredible richness and diversity. Shadi, I was struck by how you said that one would rather be a Muslim in the United States today than in any other country on earth. And you think of Bangladesh or Indonesia or even Saudi Arabia Just expand on that a little bit. Why is it better to be a Muslim in the United States than anywhere else? Well, first of all, in the country of my parents, Egypt, Egypt has been a pretty repressive country for much of its modern history, unfortunately. And if I had been born and raised in Egypt instead of the U.S., I would have lived a more constrained life in terms of the opinions that I could hold and share publicly. So I think that Islam flourishes in contexts of freedom and pluralism, maybe not unlimited freedom. There's always a limit to to, um, freedom in different societies. But if you look historically at the so-called golden ages of Islam, we see much more intellectual openness and intellectual inquiry where people weren't condemned for having an unusual position on a theological issue or debate. And America provides that space to have intellectual debates about our faith and about deeper questions around doctrine and theology. So I think that if you value this kind of personal search for religious truth and being comfortable with your own religious identity, and what could be more personal than that, right? Then the U.S., is a very good place to pursue that. Which, by the way, is precisely why in conversations like this, it's as important to analyze pressures to clam up and conform that are coming Mm. from within Muslim communities as it is to look at pressures from mainstream society. 
So square the circle for me, Irshad, because on the one hand, what I hear from you both is is that the United States is is a great place to be Muslim. But on the other hand, so many of its policies have also showed an America at its worst. We've seen nativism, we've seen xenophobia, we've seen Islamophobia. How does that all add up? Well, it adds up because human beings are complicated. And when we don't know the other, whoever that other may be, it could be a Muslim, it could be a queer person, it could be somebody living in the South, a white guy living in the South, whoever your other is, it's very easy to dehumanize that person or that group because you don't have a relationship with them. But when people begin to develop relationships across divides, that is when the love of which I spoke earlier in this conversation begins to emerge and the trust begins to develop and people begin to see, wow, for all of our differences, we actually have some shared ground. So it turns out that you're part of us and my us just got bigger. My thanks to Irshad Manji and Shadi Hamid. Irshad Manji is a scholar and author of Don't Label Me, How to Do Diversity Without Inflaming the Culture Wars. And Shadi Hamid is the author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. He's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Dan Efron, Darcy Polder, and Zamone Perez. Next time on the podcast, I'm joined by professor and author Rachel Vogelstein to discuss how the fight for gender equality has been impacted by the pandemic. Let's face it, women have been disproportionately more affected than men in terms of job losses, shouldering more housework and family care. So the question is, how can the world do better at not leaving half of its population behind? That's next week on Global Reboot. Global Reboot.